Dotnet Rocks episode 743 with guest Derek Bailey. Recorded live Thursday, February 16th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thanks very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard and we're here again. Richard, what's up? Sir, I am plotting the fall conferences already. Can you believe it? Ah, that's crazy. I know. It's always going on, but yeah, folks are starting to do their planning and they're talking to us and we're trying to figure out what shows we could go to and you know, where where we can do the best work. So that's what I'm focused on. And we're talking to the tech ed people right now. Maybe I don't I don't know if this is possible, but maybe we get some tickets to give away to our fans in the yeah. fan club. Certainly that's on the radar, trying to find a way to make that happen. It's twenty years of tech ed this year. It's gonna be phenomenal. It'll be good fun. Yep. Well, let's jump into our Better Know Framework segment. Awesome. I'm going to call this tip of the show or something because it's gotten way past the framework. Not yes. that, not, you know, not that we could, we haven't exhausted the minutiae in the framework, but it is minutiae. Yeah. You know, you know, we're coming down to it. So, um, what I went out and did is I found a really good blog post on something that we haven't really talked about. And, you know, Google has this geocoding API. Mm-hmm. Right. So that you can convert an address like, you know, whatever, a, a real physical address into geographic coordinates. Well, I went looking for some good uh, examples of how to access that in C Sharp. And I found the Random Thoughts blog, which is a guy named Darius in, in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And he did this awesome article. It was from last year about this time. Geocoding with C Sharp and Google Geocoding API version 3, which is still the current version. And if you go to tinyurl slash geocoding, D-O-T-N-E-T, geocoding.net, you'll get to that article. Uh, and I thought it was good because it's something you don't see every day. And he's using, uh, he has another version that uses JSON to access it. And it's just clean and easy and commented well. And uh, there's a couple of comments that this is exactly what uh, these people are looking for. So Awesome. Yeah. Nice find, man. Yeah. I like it when you find a good one like that. It's a good one. So, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 730, and that was the one, if you recall, with John Papa talking about the Microsoft client landscape. Yeah. And if you recall, we really started off just talking about Silverlight and ended up talking about everything Every, to do with everything Microsoft else. clients. Yeah. Which is always a good conversation to have, and apparently Rodrigo appreciated that too, because he says, it's always good to listen about the future of the technology we are currently working with, but I don't agree that the framework is ready at all. I work on a project that uses WPF in high-performance scenarios, and sometimes it just doesn't fulfill our needs. This is, in my opinion, one of the things that the development team should focus on for the next versions. And uh, Rodrigo, I think they are, because, you know, the big thing in Win8 is they're driving a big chunk of WPF and all that technology into the kernel, which should make it dramatically faster. And one of the tests I've done is, you remember the old PDC-09 tablet? Believe it or not, that was the the convertible one. Oh, Believe yeah. it or not, mine still works. Oh yeah, I put the Win Eight uh, developer pre release on it, and that ran faster than Win Seven on that device. And I think it has to do with is not that's not a lot of hardware that little guy, right? It's not that strong, 
But uh, I think Win8 just utilizes its resources better. It runs phenomenal on that little guy. Uh, and Rodrigo goes on to say, one interesting theme for the next shows, and even more when Win8 gets launched, is the new possibilities for C++ developers on the WinRT platform. Yeah. And I'm, oh, yes, you better believe it. Uh, I'm all over that, and, and I'm looking for shows along these lines, because there's a bunch of C++ developers out there looking at what WinRT does for them and going, hmm, they may surprise us all. Uh, and that's from Rodrigo uh, Vedovato in Brazil. And Rodrigo, I'm going to ship a mug down to you, my friend. Uh, good old-fashioned .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like one, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And we have more than mugs to give away here. Pretty soon we're going to be giving out, in about 30 minutes, we'll be giving out a free Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club and uh, just go to uh, .netrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx if you want to join up. Uh, so before we introduce Derek, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as our guests. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library of videos. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on web development with over 20 courses on ASP.NET, 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming as well. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce Derek Bailey. Derek is an independent software developer, a consultant, and trainer, and screencaster in Waco, Texas. He works with a variety of different software tools and technologies, including JavaScript, Ruby on Rails, Ruby's Sinatra framework, ASP.NET MVC, and more. When he's not working on client projects, he blogs at LosTechies.com, also works on open source projects hosted on GitHub, and produces screencasts for various publishers, including the Pragmatic Programmers and as his own site, WatchMeCode.net. Welcome, Derek. Thank you. Glad to be here. Los Techies. <laughs> Should yeah. we Los Techos? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I'm not the guy that started that site. Um, it was founded by a, a, a Mexican-American down in San Antonio. That's cool. A good friend of mine, Joe Ocampo, who actually he lives in Dallas now. Cool, man. How's the food down there in Waco? It's all right. Five-dollar um, burritos? Be yeah, there's... There's plenty of Mexican places around for sure. Um, it's it's mostly chain restaurants though. There, there's a few places that you have to eat if you're ever in town, but mostly you'd probably be better off just going to Dallas or Austin. Yeah. So JavaScript certainly has come a long way. Even recently, yeah, it seems to it seems to get better and better and faster and faster. What's uh, what are you seeing out there in the JavaScript world as being the latest trend? Oh, the latest trend is definitely Node.js. It is yeah. hip, isn't it? It's become the, the, the darling framework of the JavaScript world and the web development community in general recently. Who knew JavaScript programmers could write server apps? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But just this whole idea of running JavaScript outside of the browser. Right. It's like, what? Yep. Really? I mean, that, that's actually been going on for, for longer than most people think. I mean, even I think it was close to 10 years ago, Netscape had their enterprise server thingy, which... I don't remember exactly what it was, but you would write JavaScript to run in their server on on not in a browser. Huh. So it's it's been around. It's just not been terribly popular until recently. 
I suppose that's fair. So is Node.js, do you think, sparking a new interest for the JavaScript world in uh, more traditional sort of plumbing back-end programming in, outside of Node.js, or do you think that it's com- confined to Node.js at the moment? Oh no, it's it's a a vibrant and thriving growth. It's Node.js kind of stepped in at the at the beginning of this wave that we're seeing and helped push it along, but it's really a, a reciprocal, uh, a cyclical process where all of these other technologies are beginning to use JavaScript. Node is beginning to pick up additional libraries and tools to connect to these other environments, and you're seeing this outgrowth in this uh, very homogenous, uh, organic manner of all of these tools starting to use JavaScript and the JSON format in order to get things done. Right. And it's and, and as you said, it's sort of um, catching on, and uh, JavaScript programmers finding themselves doing... Do you, you think that um, a lot of people who were... You, you, there's a lot more JavaScript programmers doing stuff on the server now, or do you think that it's server programmers now using... WinJS, like people who have done things typically in PHP or even ASP.NET or or Java on the server are now thinking, well, let's try this. My best guess would be about 50-50, honestly. I think a lot of developers who were previously doing back-end stuff are now seeing, oh, hey, you know, this JavaScript, there's actually some cool stuff that I can do with it as a back-end developer. Mm. And then... At the same time, people like me who, you know, I've spent a lot of years in the back end, but I always had this um, JavaScript front end work that I had been doing. I saw Node come along and these other tools, and, and I said, oh, hey, I can take JavaScript from the front end and start doing it in the back end now. This is, this is pretty cool. This kind of bridges the gap in terms of skill set. And so we're seeing kind of a, a convergence finally between the front end developer and the back end developer with tools like Node. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based toolset that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, Tablet Show number 19 was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com, and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So one of the things that um, I'm thinking about here is that there has been so much around architecture and patterns and practices around yeah. traditional programming that have been not there in the JavaScript world. It's really been a free-for-all yeah. for a long time. You guys got, got guys like Doug Crockford sort of tra- championing the, uh, you know, right. hey, let's think about this a little bit more, um, whatever you want to call that movement. But um, w- is there any march towards standardization or or, or development of practices and, and things, or is that too much to ask of? 
the JavaScript community at this point? Oh, it's definitely not too much to ask. There's, there's been a huge push for that recently. There's a, a number of books that I've read recently in the last year or two that, that really start heading down that path quite well. Uh, one of my favorites, actually probably my all-time favorite JavaScript book, is by a, a guy named Stoyan Stefanov. Um, it's a, the, the book is called JavaScript Patterns, and it's all about good software engineering practices and good patterns for JavaScript in order to help create better code, more maintainable code, easier to read, high performance, things like that. There's a guy I've also been following, just a really good thinker about how to write code efficiently. I, I don't even look at Stoyan as a guy all about JavaScript. He's a really good thinker about programming. Yeah, absolutely he is. He does a lot of work in PHP and other languages, too. Yeah. So is, are there any other sort of uh, gurus out there that people are looking to for guidance in terms of you know, even even architecturally or, or pattern development-wise? Oh, they definitely are. Um, some of the names off the top of my head, um, there's a, a Kyle Simpson down in Austin. He used to work for Mozilla and now working for Zynga. Um, let's see, there's Alex Sexton. Uh, I think he's also in Austin. Um, let's see, in the Node community, um, there's Ryan Rausch. No, I'm sorry, that's not not Ryan Rausch. Uh, Guillermo Rausch down in South America somewhere. He's been one of the leaders of the Socket IO uh, framework, which brings web sockets and a whole bunch of different fallbacks and other really great things uh, into uh, various browsers and uh, various backend servers in a really easy manner. Hmm. Um, there's Paul Irish, of course, uh, Modernizer and jQuery mm-hmm. and, and everything else that he's into. And there's probably, you know, a, a dozen more names out there that I should be listing that I just can't think of off the top of my head. Right. There are definitely a good number of JavaScript luminaries who are really pushing things forward and saying, hey, look, these things need to be done better. Right. We need to think about architecture and performance and writing good, maintainable software because our language is becoming ubiquitous right. and it's really a necessary part of the growth. I just wonder if, you know, JavaScript programmers are wondering about, you know, uh, optimizing memory management and things like that. I mean, those are things that have just been completely foreign to the JavaScript developer. I mean, are you thinking about those kinds of things with Node.js? Not necessarily with Node. I'm not doing a a lot of Node work right now. I'm, I'm mostly just playing around with it and learning it. But when I'm doing browser-based JavaScript, I'm absolutely thinking about memory management. Hmm. Every time I implement an object, for example, I'm thinking about, okay, what attributes and methods do I need to stick in the constructor function versus in the object prototype? Hmm. And a lot of that has to do with memory management. Yeah. You also have to think about things like closures and, and uh, variable scope yeah. and making sure that we don't just have closures left and right running amok because a closure almost by definition is a memory leak. And so we have to really control those things and make sure that we're keeping everything well encapsulated and closed down tight so that we don't create real memory leaks. It's funny that just hearing the words JavaScript and memory leak in the same sentence, but I mean, <laughs> I think about it, you know, when you're doing a an asynchronous um, Java app, JavaScript application is really a a stateful being, isn't it? I mean, oh, that yeah, some absolutely. guys are going to sit on maybe for hours. 
right and use so well, and for a long time fundamentally i felt like all browsers were memory leaks in action yeah of course <laughs> very much <laughs> the so. biggest memory users of your system most likely yeah, yeah right. you want to watch memory leak just start a browser up <laughs> right. surf a few pages memory goes right. away it's funny my video editor adobe premiere uses less memory sometimes than just a uh, you know a browser with a whole bunch of sessions and tabs open nice well, and just throw some plugins into the loop too, right? Oh, yeah. The longer you run Flash, the less memory you have. <laughs> Absolutely, the less CPU power you have. <laughs> yeah, friends, don't let friends. No, I'm not going to go there. Were we going there? Yeah, no. I, you know, but this brings up an interesting question, Derek, because I think that the sophistication of JavaScript and these great frameworks have changed the way we build web pages entirely. This whole oh, idea definitely. that there is only one page, there's like the single page, and you just keep Ajaxing different content into it, yep. uh, which yeah. to me feels like the ultimate memory leak. Yeah. Well, <laughs> pretty close. You, you can definitely get down that path, but JavaScript is a garbage-collected, managed language. You know, much like .NET or Ruby or these other modern languages that we use. So it it really behooves the developer to understand how and when some of the basic garbage collection happens in JavaScript, and you can really avoid memory leaks by allowing your objects to be collected when they need to be. Now, how does the garbage collection work in JavaScript, and is it the same for each browser and each engine? Is there a standard garbage collector? I don't think there is at this point. I'm, I'm pretty sure that each of the browsers does it on their own. There might be some standard in the JavaScript, the, the ECMAScript, ECMA script standard, but I, I don't know offhand. I, I haven't read into all of those details. Um, my assumption, based on some blog posts and some other information that I've read recently, is that JavaScript garbage collection works much the same way as .NET garbage collection, in that it looks for objects that are still in use and still referenced by the application, mm. by the DOM, or by some other means to say, hey, there is a possibility that this object is still going to be used. And anytime it sees that, it hangs on to the object. And there's a couple of ways that you can force an object to be cleaned up. You can either dereference it everywhere, just let it fall out of scope, and at some point it will be cleaned up, or you can explicitly call the delete keyword. And the delete keyword essentially says, remove a reference to whatever object this variable or attribute was pointing to. And of course, I'm oversimplifying everything greatly. Right. There's there's a lot more technical details behind the scenes, but that's the gist of it. Okay. But that brings up this whole idea. If you're just going to stay on, you know, how much have we counted on the memory cleanup effects of going to another page? Right, right. And if you're just going to stay on one page, you're now responsible for cleaning that stuff up. Backbone.js. Can you tell us about that? Love to. I'm a, a huge fan of Backbone these days. That's actually where the, the vast majority of, of my paid work is these days, and my open source projects at that. Tell us about Backbone. So Backbone is, uh, contrary to popular opinion, not a JavaScript MVC framework. Okay. Um, it's actually more of a library of tools that happens to fit into the MVSTAR family, but it's really not MVC. For one, there's no controller, but also philosophically and architecturally, it just doesn't fit into that paradigm where you have controllers that are being called by routers that end up using their models in that kind of 
frameworky, I'm going to call your code manner. Backbone is really more of a, hey, here's some great abstractions that have come out of a lot of uh, different ideas and a lot of different experience, and you can go and reuse these abstractions in whatever manner you want nice. because it's just a library of tools. What's a typical place where this sits in your in your web stack? Give me an example of an application that would benefit really well from using it. Uh, the most simple place where Backbone is beneficial is anytime you see jQuery code that's having more than a few nested callbacks and more than, I don't know, 20, 30 lines of code. Uh, the the backbone view construct is really there uh, to help us organize and clean up our jQuery code. Of course, it can do a lot more than that when we want it to, but that's most often the first place that I introduce backbone into a project. Mm. Is when jQuery gets out of hand? Yeah, yeah. I just I want to bring some better structure to this jQuery code, so I'm going to bring backbone into play and start using Backbone to organize that jQuery code. So it's, it's a sort of a layer of indirection, so you're not talking to the DOM. Well, it's both. Um, Backbone's view directly ties into jQuery, or Zepto.js, if, if you want to go that route. Um, it, it, and Backbone's view will automate some of the DOM events for you and some of working with the DOM, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're still dealing with jQuery callback methods, and you're still going to do your DOM manipulations with raw jQuery, but you're going to do it in a much more structured fashion instead of just a bunch of nested callbacks. Right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. And uh, that's at uh, documentcloud.github.com slash backbone. It's very cool. Yeah, they they actually got a a new URL for the project now, just backbonejs.org. That came out a few months ago, I think. Cool. Nice. Is it is it your framework? Uh, no, it's not. Oh. Uh, Backbone Backbone was created by Jeremy Ashkenes, who also created CoffeeScript and the underscore JS library and the Jamit asset management library for Ruby and a whole bunch of other really, really amazing tools. The guy's just brilliant. Oh, very good. Uh, but he, he built Backbone uh, while he was building the Document Cloud project. And, and so that's where it came from, and it was open sourced from there onto GitHub and, and quickly gained a, a very large following. And Document Cloud is a sort of document management and abstraction tool. Tell us about that. I, I don't know a lot about it. I've only looked at it a few times, but my gathering of it is that it's a document management and annotation system, mm. uh, largely for public documents. You can go out there and create your own repository of documents and share it with the world and have all your annotations in there and notes and everything else, and then be able to, to find other information, other public knowledge that other people have put out there. That's pretty cool. I, I don't know if it supports private repositories of documents or collaboration like that. Mm. It might. Um, I don't know a lot about that project, though. So you're a big fan of Allende, Raheen? I am, definitely. And uh, you mentioned in your notes here you wanted to talk a little bit about his uh, RavenDB's JSON storage. I've been using RavenDB for, I don't know, a couple of months now, maybe not not quite six months, and I'm loving it. It's just a, a real pleasure to work with. Um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I started using MongoDB, and that was my first introduction into a document database. 
um, MongoDB also happens to have a JavaScript console uh, that, that it works within. You do everything in MongoDB in JSON and JavaScript. And it, it's really quite amazing to see JavaScript doing that. And so then along comes another client and another project, and he wants to use RavenDB. And so I dive in head first, start reading about it, start looking at it and using it, and watched uh, some uh, presentations and, and attended a conference where Ayende was was uh, talking about RavenDB and just fell in love with it quickly. Mm. It's a document database similar to MongoDB, uh, but written entirely in .NET, and its target audience is primarily .NET users. And it's but, wicked fast. Yeah, wicked <laughs> fast. It's just insanely fast. It uses Lucene.net as yeah. its uh, a search engine in order to... to query and find things. It's got this um, index uh, syntax where you can create what really amount to a SQL Server view, uh, but they call it an index, and you create those using link syntax. So if you've ever done any link programming in .NET, you're going to be able to write your indexes left and right, no problem. We did a show with Allende, show number 650 uh, on on RavenDB. Yeah. It was great. Way back, when. way back when. So I'm thinking, how do you work with RavenDB in a JavaScript context? Well, that's a, a, something I've been exploring recently, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Raven, really at its core, exposes a RESTful API on a, a port and can be accessed through standard HTTP commands. So if I've got a document that I want to store in RavenDB, I don't necessarily have to go through the .NET driver. I can do a post directly to the HTTP URL and port and everything for RavenDB, mm-hmm. and the, the body of that post can contain JSON data. And that JSON document, JavaScript object notation, will be stored in Raven as a document for me. Nice. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Yeah, that that's pretty neat. Um, sort of bypassing the whole uh, web web page, web everything, just for accessing data. It's sort of your own little yeah. entity framework kind of thing going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun for me to explore with Backbone, especially. I've, I, I don't quite have anything ready for release for the public to see because I'm still really hacking on it. But I'm working on a little project to create an adapter between Backbone and RavenDB directly. Because honestly, most of my Backbone projects are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. They don't really have any kind of business logic on the back end, but I have to create a back end server in order to support the RESTful API and be able to send my Backbone models to the back end server, have it store it, be able to retrieve it, and all that. So I'm thinking, hey, if I can create an adapter between Backbone and Raven, I can just get rid of that middleman and go straight to the database with my 
with my, my backbone application. Every time I hear about stuff like this, I think, how well does it scale? Because you're essentially, <laughs> you know, because you're yeah. essentially eliminating some, um, key layers that can be scaled out. Oh, yeah, absolutely you are. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that I would want to do this for a production ready, scalable application right now. But it certainly is a lot of fun to work on this and hack away at it and just make it work. Yeah, at the same time, it's an interesting level of granularity. Like, as a guy who thinks about scaling a lot, this is so granular. I, I just have a sense that it, it, you know, you're counting on Raven DB scaling well. And let's face it, IND kicks ass. Yeah, so, he does. <laughs> if, you know, the fact that you've got these fairly small units of work and you're all you're doing because you're going through the REST API is just the puts and the gets. Like, there's only so right. much you can do there. Yeah. It, it should scale pretty nicely. It's really granular. You know, you're not actually invoking a service. You're bypassing a lot of that stuff. I think it's very clever. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping to have an adapter written between Backbone and Raven probably sometime in the next couple of weeks if I can find a few more hours to, to really nail down what I've been doing. I'd like to see a sort of a architectural Iron Chef, you know, sort <laughs> of a, d- d- just put these things together and pound the hell out of them and see which which scales better. I mean, going up against SQL Server is a formidable opponent. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I really, I would really love to see what, at what point your, uh, it, your application traffic outgrows it. Yeah, that, that'd be a really interesting question. I've not had good luck with scaling SQL Server other than scaling up with larger servers in, in my past jobs. Now, I know, of course, it's possible and people do it all the time. That's, that's my own experience due to my lack of, uh, due to my lack of experience with scaling it, really. Mm. But I, I typically see Oracle and SQL Server as solving different problems than relational, I'm sorry, as solving different problems than document databases these days. Mm-hmm. So I typically do more of the transactional, uh, you know, live data in my document database and then denormalize and star schema and OLAP cube and everything else in the relational databases where they can really show their power in, in the relational model and in the, the structured query language and all that. Hey, Derek, jumping back a little bit here, I grabbed a question off of Twitter from Todd Anglin. So you bet, okay. I bet you know where Todd's going to come from on this. He wanted yeah. me to ask you about your experience with Backbone.js and uh, Telerik's Kendo UI. You know, Do I was you gonna, use those two together? I was going to ask that question, but I wasn't sure if, uh, if you had used it. Yeah, actually, I, I have been recently, and I absolutely love it. Love it, love it, love it. That's now, good full disclosure, I was given a full Telerik Enterprise license in exchange for talking about it whenever I have the chance. But I, I accepted that with the utmost joy because I didn't want to have to pay the $400 or, or however much it is in order to get the Kendo UI license. Mm. But I, I really do love it. I've I spent probably about a year working with jQuery UI, and it was sufficient. It got the job done. I learned how to use it pretty well, and and it worked fine with Backbone for the most part. There were some things that it didn't do, so I had to find some other plugins. But then about three months ago, I started really looking at Kendo UI and found that it was just so much cleaner when working with Backbone because the APIs were far less assumptive about what it wanted you to do. It it didn't make nearly as many assumptions. It didn't make nearly as many requirements that you had to to follow in order to get things done. 
And so I've been really happy with, with Kendall UI and Backbone together. And speaking of Telerik, you know what time it is, Richard? It's that happy time. And it's time in the middle of the show. We're going to give away a Telerik Ultimate uh, Collection. Mm-hmm. And the winner of today's Ultimate Collection is Mark Pearl. Woohoo! Congratulations, he's written Mark. Us a few emails over the years. Yep. He's a, he's a true fan. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to dotnetrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx and sign up. Uh, and that's, that's it. As long as we have your name and uh, answer a few questions for us, you're in the list. And we're going to give away stuff on a regular basis, including next, well, this December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology, undisclosed technology. We're, we're going to find the best deal on five grand worth of great stuff and give it away. And you got to sign up to win. Just head over to the Donna Rocks website. There's a big link on the right-hand side that's about the fan page. Click on that, answer a few questions, and you're in. That's it. Well, it's good to hear that uh, that you like Kendo UI. I was playing with it as we were talking to Todd on the show Mm -hmm. and uh, downloading it and and accessing the the stuff on the the demos on the iPhone, and it looked so cool. It just looks great. Yeah, the default styling that they have with it is really beautiful. Spot on. It comes with five or six different themes, and, and I generally just like the default theme that they include. I, I think it looks really, really nice. So Windows 8 and Metro, the, uh, Microsoft really did a, a a good thing for JavaScript developers, do you think? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I had a chance to play with the, the Microsoft Build uh, Samsung tablets from last year, I think it was, or the year before. Um, and I really enjoyed that Windows 8 Metro style of, of tablet experience. It was it was very unique, but it was also very intuitive. Mm-hmm. They had some really cool things going on with it. And I was happy to hear that Microsoft was doing the whole HTML5, CSS, JavaScript thing in order to be able to build apps on top of Metro. Well, here's the big question. Do you personally know anybody who wasn't in the Microsoft camp before and who was doing JavaScript, CSS, uh, HTML5, maybe programming. And because of that is, you know, getting into and excited about Metro. I don't think I could name any names specifically, but I do have some vague memories and some specific memories of people on Twitter saying, hey, you know what? This Windows Phone 7 thing is really nice. I like this this, uh, user interface. Mm. And I'm not sure about Windows 8 specifically, but I can't imagine that it, it wouldn't be happening a little bit more and a little bit more, because quite frankly, it is a really nice experience. Yeah. And, and with the ability to write JavaScript and the ability to write JavaScript that hits the hardware level yeah. in order to do some really advanced stuff, it's going to be a lot of fun building apps for Windows 8 tablets. Yeah, I'm just wondering how much the fact that it's compiled the customizations for the Chakra engine with their contracts and so forth are, are just going to make it such a unique development environment that, yeah. you know, the skills don't really cross over. Well, it's, I think we're starting to see some of that fragmentation in the JavaScript world already, honestly, and I'm not sure it's going to be that much of a problem. I, I think it falls along the lines of C++. You know, you can go write C++ for Windows or for Unix or for whatever operating system, it's the language and the syntax and the general knowledge and experience that you transfer with you. But then you're going to have to learn the specifics of that operating operating system's APIs and, 
and how to really deal with the kernel in, in that environment. Yeah. And I kind of see JavaScript going the same way. You've got you know, tools like MongoDB that are database engines running JavaScript. So mm-hmm. you end up with a very di- different set of objects to work with. And then there's Node.js. And then there's the browsers. And then there's browser-specific extensions. And now we're just seeing some more extensions sitting on top of Windows. Um, getting back to uh, Backbone briefly, do you think that using Backbone has sort of been uh, is a sort of a good way to enforce some of those best practices and and software engineering principles, or oh, is that something that you have to learn outside of using? In other words, can a tool sort of teach you uh, best practice? A, a tool definitely can teach a best practice, but it's dangerous to assume but the tool's way of doing it is the best practice. Um, it's it's one of those chicken-egg problems where you need concrete examples to, to show how to do the best practice, but then if you assume that the concrete example is the best practice, you're kind of in trouble. So you, it really takes more experience than just one implementation in order to understand the best practice, but I think Backbone is a great way to get into it um, honestly, Backbone showed me that I could do these software, engi- these software engineering principles and practices in JavaScript when I started using it last year. It's not quite a year ago now that I started looking at it. I've been, I mean, I've been working with JavaScript since Netscape 2 was first released, so pretty much its entire history, and it's always been a love-hate relationship with me. Sure was just a hate-hate relationship? <laughs> Well, at times it definitely was a hate-hate relationship. (laughs) (laughs) It frustrated me to no end, and I would swear off of it and then come back to it and, oh, hey, jQuery, this is actually fun. And then I hated it again because my jQuery was horrible and a mess. And, oh, look, Backbone. Wow, I can actually do object models? Wow, I can separate the, the presentation from the real processing? Wow, this is actually fun. This fits directly in line with all these principles that I've been learning and trying to master for the last 10 years, and I'm doing it in JavaScript. What kind, of, what kind of principles and practices can we take from C-sharp or VBNet programming, .NET programming in general, over into the JavaScript world? Uh, architectural patterns and ideas for how to manage state and workflow in a WinForms environment are the most beneficial that, uh, that I've found when transitioning to, to Backbone or, or something else like that. Isn't that interesting? You know, we, I've been thinking a lot about Windows Forms lately, Richard. Um, yeah. yeah. There's so many things that you can do with Windows Forms that you... You remember when everybody was trying to figure out how to make Windows Forms like, you know... Uh, you know, the install process more pain, less painful and... Yep. Um, bootstrapping because the .NET framework wasn't there. Well, the .NET framework's pretty much there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, a Windows Form application is really powerful these days. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, besides the Battleship Gray problem, but, you know, you yeah. can you can kind of get creative with that a little bit, I think. But, sure, uh, and, and then you can throw XAML and WPF on top of that, and it's still pretty much a WinForms app. It's just a slightly different UI technology. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and just remembering that we did an awful lot right back then, and, and we're still, I, in some ways, I think, yeah. the WinForms designer is still the best designer out there. That the, the WPF and, heck, even CSS and HTML, we don't have a comparable designer. Yeah. Well, we're not there yet. Well, it's, there's certainly more tools for it, that's for sure. 
You know the thing that never worked right in wind forms till the very, very end? Data binding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really think we've got data binding right in the, you know, sort of silver light and even 3-0. looking at stuff like uh, a knockout JS yeah. for, a, you know, in the HTML space, they seem like a better data binding solution even than what we saw in WinForms. Yeah, knockout is, is one of the other big popular frameworks these days, especially in, in the Microsoft uh, ASP.NET MVC crowd. I think uh, Microsoft is even shipping knockout with one of the recent or upcoming releases of MVC. And, it, and it's a it's a great framework. It has some really, really, really powerful data binding capabilities built into it. It's one of those frameworks where you you pull up a, a Steve Sanderson video to to watch a demonstration, expecting, hey, this should be kind of cool. Let's see what this is about. And by the time you're done, your jaw's hanging in your lap, and you're just floored at mm-hmm. how powerful and and how easy it is to to do some really complicated what used to be really complicated things. With with uh, knockout, yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah. So what uh, what's next for you? What are you going to be working on these days? Well, uh, I think the next thing I'll be doing is taking my JavaScript and my backbone love into the mobile world. There's a lot of really good, really powerful stuff going on in mobile development these days, and backbone is uh, getting to be right smack in the middle of it again. I think all of the, the principles and patterns and object-oriented design that, that a, a library like Backbone brings with it is doing some wonders for the mobile, the mobile web. And with tools like PhoneGap and uh, Accelerator Titanium, making it really easy to write good apps without having to, to learn a new language. And do you feel like... Uh... Backbone's going to carry into the mobile space. It's not going to need, like, the same way that jQuery sort of made a mobile UI implementation. Do you think you're going to need to do that for Backbone? No, actually, I I don't. There are a large number of companies, and it's growing every day, that are already doing Backbone in the mobile world. Cool. Um, LinkedIn, for example, everybody knows LinkedIn. And chances are you have the LinkedIn mobile app on your phone. Well, that LinkedIn mobile app is written in Backbone. Wow. Good to know. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much for talking to us, Derek. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a